I am a, a huge fan of sporting events. I, it's in my blood, I guess. I don't know. It's just from the time I was little, I remember being a, a fan of sports. And my favorite game is baseball. I grew up about 45 minutes outside of Cleveland. It, they were the Cleveland Indians at the time. They've recently changed their name to the Guardians. But, but as long as I knew them growing up, they, they were the, the Indians. And I'm actually a Reds fan, even though I lived about four hours away from Cincinnati. And that's because... When I was seven years old and really starting to love baseball, the Reds won the World Series. And I know you're tempted to be like, front runner, I assure you, there's been plenty of losing to endure ever since I made that decision at the age of seven, and I've stuck with them. But in the, in the mid-90s, the Cleveland Indians were an incredible baseball team. Absolutely incredible. They had, they had one of the most explosive offenses that the game has ever seen. And what was interesting was that was happening for the Cleveland Indians, whereas if you're a baseball fan, you know they were bad for a really long time, and, and not just five or ten years. We're talking decades of being horrible. They played in a terrible stadium. Their teams were always awful. One year, Sports Illustrated picked them to win the World Series. They wound up dead last. I mean, it was just, just a disaster of a franchise, and they finally got some they finally got some improvements going on. They built a new ballpark. And then in the mid-1990s, they were an incredible baseball team. And tickets were impossible to get. They were absolutely impossible to get. It was over, over a span of five seasons where the, where the season sold out before the season started. And this was obviously brand new for Cleveland Indians fans because they had always been terrible. And one day, I was going to an Indians game with my dad and some of his friends and one of my friends. And Alice Cooper, of all people, actually had a bar and restaurant across the street uh, from, from the stadium. And so we were all in there before the game. And my dad and his friends were talking about old, old Indians players that they grew up, my friend and I are looking at each other like, we have no idea what these guys are talking about. But it's, it's like the old glory days stories. They're all talking about, hey, remember this guy, and remember this guy, and remember that time. They're, they're all laughing and having a good time. And in the middle of the conversation, they paused, and one of my dad's friends looked at us and said, in order to understand where we are now, you have to understand where we came from. In order to understand where we are now, you have to understand where we came from. And I think that's true in a lot of elements of life. It's certainly true when you've been a long-suffering fan of a sports franchise and all of a sudden your, your fortunes change seemingly overnight. I think it's true then. I think it's true in, in the midst of good times. In the midst of good times, in order to understand where you are now, you have to remember where you came from. You have to remember what it was like before you made it here in the midst of suffering. I think it's really important for you to remember before you, before you arrived here what it, what it used to be like. And, and I think that's really important. And we're going to see that this is a tool that the author of Hebrews used in Hebrews chapter 11. So if you have your phones or your tablets, I'd invite you to follow along with us in the Bible app. It's a free resource. No matter what app store you're using on your device, you can go in there, type in Bible, download the free app. It's a great resource. And one of the features within the Bible app, once you download and install it on your device, is an events feature. And there you can either enable your locations or type in zip code 54201 and Lakeside Community Church will pop up. You can follow along with us there. If you have a traditional Bible, we're going to be in Hebrews. Now, we're, we're wrapping something up today called the beginning. 
And so over the course of the last few weeks, we've been looking at Genesis and we saw how God created everything. God created Adam and Eve. And because God created everything, God gets to make the rules. That's just how it works. And Adam and Eve rebelled against those rules. And then we saw what happened as a result of Adam and Eve's rebellion. Then we saw what happened to their family, how their family was torn apart because of that. And then we saw how the whole world started spiraling to the point that every desire that people had in their hearts was one of evil. And God said, we're going to do a reset. And so God decided to send the flood. He had Noah and his family get on the ark with all the animals. For, uh, it would rain for 40 days and 40 nights, but they would be on that boat for a year before all of the water would subside. Noah got off the boat. He made an altar. He worshiped God. He went into new business for himself, became a winemaker, got wasted, got naked, went into a tent. Something shady happened with the kid. We don't know what all happened there. They then populate the earth, and then people say, we're going to devise an amazing city. And in the middle of our city that's full of progress and full of ingenuity, that's, that's full of all kinds of wonderful technologies and all kinds of new designs, in the midst of this, we're going to create a tower. And this skyscraper, this tower, is going to be so impressive, it's going to reach the heavens. And in this place called Babel, what we saw was people wanted all the blessing and all the benefit of God without God actually being part of the equation and how God wanted nothing to do with that. So that'll catch you up through the first 11 chapters of Genesis where we've been. And now today we're going to see that thousands of years in the future from that, thousands of years later, the author of Hebrews calls back to what we have seen in Genesis as a point of driving home what genuine faith looks like. So if you've ever wrestled or you've ever wondered, what does legitimate, genuine faith look like? We're going to answer that question today based on what the author of Hebrews wrote for us in Hebrews chapter 11. And that's where we'll start today in Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 1, where we read these words. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not Seen. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So right off the bat, the author of Hebrews wants to give us a clear definition of what faith is, and that's what he does in Hebrews 11. He tells us that faith is the, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Right off the bat, he's going to define this for, define what faith is for us. In case you've ever wondered, what, what is faith? Here's the answer to that question. This is the answer to what faith is. But he not only wants to define it for us, he wants us to fully grasp it, and he wants us to fully understand. So it's not enough just to offer a definition, especially when something is this important. It's not enough just to give somebody the definition of what faith is. He wants them to really understand it. He wants the audience to fully grasp what he's trying to communicate, what he's trying to, to talk about here. And so he goes on, For by it the people of old received their commendation. For by it, the people of old receive their commendation. So I've told you what faith is, the author of Hebrews writes. But I want you to get it. I want you to understand what it looks like in your life. I want you to understand what it means to be a person of faith, how you're going to respond as a result of faith, and what your life, how this is going to impact your life, and what your life is going to look like. Now we get to Hebrews 11.3. By faith, we understand that the universe 
was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So the very first evidence we're provided for faith here, after we're given the definition, is an act of God. Is God working? This is the beginning. This is the birth of everything. That God, who is eternal in his existence, out of nothing, created everything. That the unseen God created the seen realm in which we exist, in which everything operates to our understanding. And how did the unseen God create the seen realm in which we live? How did he create this world? By speaking it into existence. By speaking it into existence. And there are all kinds of discoveries that people can make that will point to an intelligent design. They can point to a creator. They can point to there is a purpose and there is a reason that this isn't just happenstance. And this isn't just some amazing just coincidence that all of this exists. And yet understand what he, the author of Hebrews tells us is it takes faith to fully grasp this. It takes faith to fully grasp the fact that God out of nothing spoke and created everything. And I don't think it's a coincidence that in the discussion of faith that we're going to see, we go back, start by remembering what God has done. There is a relationship that cannot be divorced between God and faith. It cannot be divorced. It cannot be separated between God and faith. And the author of Hebrews here, right at the outset, wants us to remember and wants us to be reminded of how God has worked and what God has done. He starts there. And I would encourage you to make this a principle and make this a point in your life as well. That you make it a discipline that you remember how God has worked in your life. The things that God has done for you. I'm not naturally good at celebrating wins. It's, it's, one, of, it's one of the things that, that is a deficiency of mine. When something goes well, when something operates in the way that it should, great. I'm on to the next thing. I don't sit down and say, wow, it's so awesome that everything worked out according to plan. That's fantastic. I know some people are like that. I'm not. When things go well, I'm like, great, let's get on to the next thing. But when things go poorly, I want to rip everything apart. I want to look at every detail of why something didn't go well. I want to analyze everything, and I want to fix it, and I agonize over the losses more than I celebrate and enjoy the victories. That's, that's how I'm wired. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm just saying that is very much natural for me. That is how I'm wired. And one of the deficiencies that that brings about in my life as a result of the way that I'm wired is I can very easily lose sight of all of the things that God has done, of all of the ways that God has worked, because when something good happens, I'm naturally onto the next project, onto the next thing. It gets a check mark and it's, it's great. Now onto the next thing. That's going to take my energy and that's going to take my focus. And if you are wired like me, I'm sorry, but if you're wired like me, one of the disciplines that you need to put in your life is you need to make it a point. You need to make it a point to reflect and remember what God has done. Because if you don't, there will be a lack of gratitude. There will be forgetfulness. You will lose sight of all the incredible ways that God has blessed you, all the incredible things that God has done in your story and in your life because you're on to the next thing. One of the disciplines I started doing right before the start of this year was I've just created a note in my phone 
where I write down answers to prayer, I write down ways that God has worked, I write down cool things that God has done, and I make it a discipline to record those things because I'm somebody who needs to do that. I know somebody who's wired similar uh, to the ways that I'm wired. I was talking to them about this, and they created an email for themselves. So they log into their email, and they send themselves an email report of what God's done and how he's worked. Like, that's a little too in-depth for me, all right? I can barely remember the passwords I already have. The last thing I want is another account that I'm going to have to try to remember the password on, and then they're going to make me reset that in six months, even though I'm perfectly happy with the password I have now, and nobody's ever going to steal it, but I still have to reset it in six months, and then I'm not going to remember it then anyhow. So I'm just going to do the note on my phone. But whatever works for you, I would encourage you set yourself away to remember and reflect what God has done in your life. Don't just move past the blessings. Don't just move past the ways that God has worked on to the next thing, but make it a point for you to reflect and remember. And as people are coming up with resolutions for 2022 over the course of the next week and a half or so, and you're thinking of things that you really should start to do, I can't encourage you enough. Make it a point in your life to remember what God has done. Make it a point in your life to remember what God has done. Maybe that's a note on a phone for you. Maybe it's creating an email address. Maybe you express yourself in art. So you can, you can create yourself a piece of art every time that God does something, or you can, you can correspond that somehow in the art that you create. Maybe you design something. Maybe you create in a different way. Whatever the case may be for you, there is no, there is no one size fits all, but however God has wired you, make sure you put into practice a way for you to remember and reflect how God has worked, and you revisit that. And I'm not saying you have to turn this into a daily event for some people. It is daily, whether that's when you wake up, when you go to bed, or, or a quarterly. Whatever works for you is the important thing, that you have a system in place where you can reflect and remember how God has worked and remember what he has done in your life. As the author of Hebrews gets us start, started on this conversation of faith, he clearly defines it, and then he says, let's remember, let's remember what God has done. And by faith, we look back and we see that the unseen God spoke and created the seen realm in which we live. And then we move on from there. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Now, we're going to get to, to Cain and Abel in just a minute, but there was a question that I had for a really long time which plagued me anytime I would read Hebrews 11, and that's the author of Hebrews starts with God creating everything and then moves to Cain and Abel. I'm like, oh, we're forgetting a couple people. What happened to Adam and Eve? That's not a good omen. You know, they took of the, the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil, but when they ate that fruit, what's that mean for them? What's that mean for the way that God sees Adam and Eve? Are, are they not in heaven? I mean, what's going on here? They're not recorded for us in, in Hebrews 11. And, and if you're wondering, uh, where are Adam and Eve and what are the implications for them not being mentioned in Hebrews 11, I, I just want to remind you that Adam and Eve had a unique relationship with God. That Adam and Eve... 
they had, before they ate of the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil, they had intimacy with God. They walked with God. They, they saw the unseen God amongst them, and they had a different relationship than what we experience. And, and the reason that they're not included here is because of that unique relationship that they had with God before sin alienated them from God. And so it isn't an issue that Adam and Eve weren't redeemed, we believe, according to the promise of Genesis 3 and their response to God giving them the promise of Genesis 3, that they did repent of their actions and that they did indeed find salvation by looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. But that's why they're not included here in Hebrews chapter 11. And so we go to their sons, to Cain and Abel. And we saw that by faith, Abel offered God his best. He brought God a sacrifice. He brought God an offering where he offered God the best of what he had to offer. And that pleased God. Meanwhile, his brother Cain brought to God his leftovers. He brought to God just something out of duty and out of obligation. And God wants no part of that. What God saw when he saw Abel's offering was he saw the heart behind the offering. And he saw that his desire was to give God the best that he could offer. And God delighted in that. But when he saw that Cain responded out of duty and out of obligation, and he threw together some leftovers just just to try to meet some standard, but his heart was far behind it, God did not take any delight in the offering that Cain presented. And so Cain responded by killing Abel. And this is fascinating to me, that in the fourth chapter of the Bible, literally the fourth chapter, we see someone who suffers and ultimately is martyred for their faith. It takes us to chapter four to see someone suffering and martyred as a result of their faith. And this is just a reminder to those of us who follow Jesus that our faith is going to cost us something. Our faith is going to cost us something. And the question that we have to wrestle with is, how do we respond in those instances? How do we respond in the instances when our faith does legitimately cost us something? What do we do? And I love how the author of Hebrews paints this picture of Abel and what he says about the fact that he was killed by his brother. When he says, and through Abel's faith, though Abel died, Abel still speaks. And the thing that's important for all of us who follow after Jesus to keep at the forefront is even though our faith will cost us something, that is never lost on God. God never loses sight of that fact. And here the author of Hebrews tells us, even though Abel was killed, his faith still speaks. His faith still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And now we get to Genesis 5, which we didn't really take a look at because Genesis 5 is full of genealogies and it's full of reports of people populating the earth and it's full of all kinds of things. But in the midst of of those reports in Genesis chapter 5, we're told of Enoch. And now the author of Hebrews goes back and he highlights Enoch and he says, God spared him death. He vanished. 
and I know what you're thinking. I'm thinking it too. That's an incredible premise for a podcast right there. Like, he's just gone. And, and if you're like me, you have all kinds of questions. And if you don't have all kinds of questions about this, I'm kind of questioning you right now. Because I'm like, how can you not have all kinds of questions about this? This is fascinating. Genesis 5, I'm just going to read a couple verses, 21 to 24, says this. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. I mean, I read that, and I want to know more. And how can you not want to know more? Like, I, I want to know more, but here's what God wants us to know. That Enoch was 65 years old when he fathered Methuselah. And we're like, wow, that's old. All right, that's, that's old to be having a newborn. A lot, of the, a lot of diaper changes, you know, a lot, of, a lot of late night feedings, a lot of exhaustion there when you're 65 having a kid. Uh, you know, but he lived at 365, so chances are 65 then feels different than 65 now. And if any of you are 65 with a little kid, you're like, I, I sure hope so, because I wouldn't want him to experience what I'm having to experience. But this is, this is fascinating to me. Enoch had Methuselah and then walked with God for 300 years. Enoch had Methuselah and then walked with God for 300 years. What we see in Enoch's life is what's been true in, in many people's lives. And that's this, that parenthood changes you. Parenthood changes you. Parenthood makes you realize you need Jesus in a way very few other things can. Because parenthood, it makes you, it makes you realize that you don't have all the answers. And you want to do your very best, but you can't promise in every certain circumstance as much as you might want to. There are things that you simply can't control. And parenthood reminds you, there are people you can't control. And you really want to control them some of the times because you see that it's just on the path for disaster. But you can't make other people's choices and decisions for them. It doesn't matter what you try to do in order to make the choices and decisions for them. You ultimately can't make the choices and decisions for them. And so you just have to do the best that you can. But it's ultimately up to them. It reminds you that there is evil in this world. And there is danger that lurks. And that there is goodness in this world. And that there is joy in this world. And there is hope in this world. But what Enoch experienced is not rare. And it's one of the reasons that I'm so passionate about what we, what we offer families here at Lakeside. Because I understand that parenthood does change people. And whereas people may not even take the time to, to ask spiritual questions or take the time to process those things, there's something that God does in people's lives and in the hearts of people when they have a kid staring back at them that, that makes them search for answers. It makes them wonder. It makes them ask hard questions. 
And as a church, we have to be there. We have to be there to come alongside young families because there's no job in the world that's as hard as parenting. There's none. And then you add in the dynamic of step-parenting, whereas if parenting isn't hard enough, now you've got, it. You've got somebody else that comes into the equation. And sometimes the kids reject the, the new parent. Sometimes the new parent doesn't know how to interact with the kids, and then there can be tension with the old spouse, the old partner, and then there can be tension with the new spouse, and there's all of these things that go into the equation of, of blending families. And we understand this is a tough job. It's a rewarding job, but it's incredibly difficult. And so we just want to come alongside you. And our goal and our desire is not to parent your kids. That's not our, that's not our obligation. We don't want it. That's your job, all right? But what we do want is we want to come alongside of you, and we want to celebrate you, and we want to encourage you. We want to pray with, and we want to pray for you, and we want to help you because we understand it's incredibly exhausting. And you do the best that you can. And sometimes you get it right. And we want to celebrate you in those moments. And sometimes you get it wrong. And when you get it wrong, nobody feels worse about that than you do. And in those times, we want to encourage you. We want to encourage you by letting you know we've been there. We want to encourage you by saying, this doesn't define you. We want to encourage you by praying for the situation. We want to build your kids up in a world that wants to tear them down. We want to encourage your kids. We want to celebrate your kids. We want to let them know that they are special. We want to remind them that they are created in God's image. We want them to know that there is a God who loves them. And we want to celebrate your kids. We want to celebrate you. We want to be there in every step of the equation. We want to help you with this. And this is why I love so much what, what we're doing down the hall in Lakeside Kids and Lakeside Littles. And I have no part in it. All right. I have absolutely no part in it whatsoever except to champion it and say, tell me what you need and we'll get you the resources that we need. But we, we try really hard to make it so that our two boys don't have to come to both services every single week. I want my kids to grow up loving church. I don't want them to view like church as an obligation. I don't want them to feel like, oh, it's something we have to do because dad works there. I want, my, I want my boys to grow up loving Jesus and loving his church and not feel like I have to do this out of duty or obligation. So we try really hard to make sure that there are weeks every month that they don't have to come to both services. So sometimes they're just going to have to come to both services. They can suck it up and get over it. But our goal is to make it so they don't have to do that every single week. And last week, I was telling my youngest son on Saturday night, I'm like, hey, buddy, you can stay up a little bit later tonight. You can watch some more of the game. I'm like, you don't have to wake up early tomorrow and, and go to church early with me because you don't have to go to both services. And he said, why would I want to sleep in, Dad? I'm like, well, this way you can, you can just come to the later service and you can, you can sleep in a little bit. And he goes, no, I, I want you to wake me up. I want to be at both services. I love going to church. And I'm just going to tell you, like, there's no better feeling as a parent to hear that. And again, I have nothing to do with that. Like, that's, that's all the team in Lakeside Kids and Lakeside Littles and, and all the people who volunteer and put in their time and their effort to love on my kids and to love on your kids. That has nothing to do with me. But as a parent from the bottom of my heart, if you're part of that, thank you. Thank you. Because it means the world to me as a dad when, when my son says, Dad, I love going to church. Like, and I hope, I hope that that stays with him. I hope that it stays with him his whole life. I don't know if it will. I pray that it does. But for those of you who are impacting him right now and impacting his life from my heart and from my ha family's heart, from the bottom of our hearts, 
thank you so much for what you do because it matters. Now, I'd love to tell you more about Enoch. I'd love to tell you more about Methuselah. I'd love to tell you all about his family. But here's what Scripture wants us to know about Enoch. That he was 65 when he had a son. That altered him. For 300 years, he walked with God. And my greatest hope for every single one of you, and myself as well, is that when our lives are reduced to a couple sentences, and all of them will be, that one of the statements that people make about us is that we walked with God. There will be much in our lives that, that, are, that is not reported. There will be much in our lives that is forgotten. But when they reduce our lives to a few sentences, as they will every single one of us, my hope and my prayer for every single one of us is this, that included in that summary will be that we walked with God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We don't have time to tear this apart. Just understand, it's impossible to please God without faith. There can be all kinds of grand gestures. There can be all kinds of goodness. But without faith being an essential element into that, it is impossible to please God. And then we get to verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith Noah built the ark. By faith God told Noah, I'm sending a flood in a time it had probably never rained before. And Noah builds a giant boat. By faith Noah and his family get in the boat with all of the animals. And God does a reset by sending the flood. And yet, Genesis tells us how the story ends. And remember that whole Noah becomes the winemaker, gets naked in the tent, and something happens with the family member? Well, Genesis records it for us, but it isn't mentioned here. Why is that? And this leads me to ask the question, do our best moments define us or do our worst? Do our best moments define us or do our worst? It's an answer we have to wrestle with. It's an answer we have to grapple with. It's an answer that's asked every day in courtrooms, in prisons, in boardrooms, in high schools. Just this week, there was a high-profile high news when a CEO of a company a former CEO of a company was required to return $105 million in compensation to his company after it was uncovered that during the course of his time spent leading the organization, he had had affairs with multiple people that also worked at the company. It was, it was news-making that, that they reached a settlement where the CEO would return $105 million back to the company. And as the story was breaking, I watched as one analyst on a financial network said to another, this is one of those times I like to say I thought I knew him. I was wrong. And the question I'm left with 
is, but what if that analyst is wrong? What if the affairs don't define the CEO? But what if all of the things that the analyst thought he knew about the CEO, which are true, what if all of those things instead define the CEO? And we're left with this question, and we're left with this tension that we have to wrestle with. Do our best moments define us, or do our worst And every single one of us want to be defined by our best moments. And our worst moments, we want to be forgotten. We want those worst moments to be buried. We want the worst moments to be left in our past. We want the worst moments to not be discussed. We all want to be defined by our best moments, but we live in a society that frequently defines people by their worst. And what do we do with this? I think the answer is found for us right here in Hebrews 11.7. By faith, not because our good outweighs our bad, but by faith in what God accomplished for us when he sent his son Jesus to pay the price for our rebellion once and for all. That Jesus became sin on my behalf and on your behalf because the cost of our sin, the cost of our rebellion is death. And so Jesus came and he paid that price for you and for me. And three days later, he rose again, proving that God is bigger than sin, proving that God is victorious over our worst moments, proving that God is greater than our worst mistakes. So that as people of faith, by faith, that when God looks at us and His is the only opinion that matters, the incident with Noah and the tent, that's covered. The incident of my mistakes, of my regrets, That's covered. That when God sees me, God sees my best moments. And when God analyzes my worst mistakes, what God sees is the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. So that he's taken my worst moments and thrown them, as scripture says, as far as the east is from the west. Faith makes that possible. Not because my good outweighs my bad, but because Jesus was perfect and he was the sacrifice in my place. That's the promise of faith. And that's the hope for every single one of us that has placed our faith and trust in Jesus. God, I pray that we would be people who live lives of faith. I pray that we would be people who are full of gratitude for what you have called us to. I pray that we would be people who live in a way that exudes love. I pray that we would be people 
that not only claim to have faith with the words that we speak, but in the lives that we live, it would, they would be pictures of that which we proclaim. God, that we would be people who realize just how remarkable your love for us is. that our worst mistakes don't have to define us because of what your son has done for us. That we would rest in that forgiveness. God, I pray that as we seek you, we would find you. And that as we live lives of faith, we're reminded of what Scripture says, that true faith always brings about action. So we would love the loveless. We would fight for the poor and the oppressed. We would clothe the naked. We would feed the hungry. God, that we would reach out to those who need a friend. that we would remember how you've worked and transformed our lives. Never lose sight of what you've done for us, Jesus. And it is with grateful hearts that we say thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.